This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine, Part 2, Section 6. Recording by Steve Brown. The time implied by the expression after it that is, after that day, being put in comparison with all the time that passed before it, must, in order to give any expressive signification to the passage, mean a great length of time. For example, it would have been ridiculous to have said so the next day, or the next week, or the next month, or the next year. To give, therefore, meaning to the passage, comparative with the wonder it relates and the prior time it alludes to, it must mean centuries of years, less, however, than one would be trifling, and less than two would be barely admissible. A distant but general time is also expressed in the eighth chapter, where, after giving an account of the taking of the city of Ai, it is said, verse 28, And Joshua burned I, and that made it a heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And again, verse 29, where, speaking of the king of Ai, whom Joshua had just hanged and buried at the entering of the gate, it is said, And he raised thereon a great heap of stones, which remaineth unto this day. That is, unto the day or time in which the writer of the book of Joshua had lived. And again in the tenth chapter, where, after speaking of the five kings whom Joshua had hanged on five trees, and then thrown in a cave, it is said, And he laid great stones on the cave's mouth, which remain unto this very day. In enumerating the several exploits of Joshua, and of the tribes, and of the places which they conquered or attempted, it is said, chapter 15, verse 63, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. The question upon this passage is, at what time did the Jebusites and the children of Judah dwell together at Jerusalem? As this matter occurs again in the first chapter of Judges, I shall reserve my observations until I come to that part. Having thus shown from the book of Joshua itself, without any auxiliary evidence whatever, that Joshua is not the author of that book, and that it is anonymous, and consequently without authority, I proceed, as before mentioned, to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is anonymous on the face of it, and therefore even the pretense is wanting to call it the word of God. It has not so much as a nominal voucher, it is altogether fatherless. This book begins with the same expression as the book of Joshua, that of Joshua begins, chapter 1, verse 1, 
now after the death of Moses, etc. And this of the judges begins, now after the death of Joshua, etc. This and the similarity of style between the two books indicate that they are the work of the same author, but who he was is altogether unknown. The only point that the book proves is that the author lived long after the time of Joshua. For though it begins as if it followed immediately after his death, the second chapter is an epitome or abstract of the whole book, which, according to the Bible chronology, extends its history through a space of 306 years, that is, from the death of Joshua, 1,426 years before Christ, to the death of Samson, 1,120 years before Christ, and only 20 years before Saul went to seek his father's asses, and was made king. But there is good reason to believe that it was not written till the time of David, at least, and that the book of Joshua was not written before the same time. In the first chapter of Judges, the writer, after announcing the death of Joshua, proceeds to tell what happened between the children of Judah and the native inhabitants of the land of Canaan. In this statement, the writer, having abruptly mentioned Jerusalem in the seventh verse, says immediately after in the eighth verse, by way of explanation, Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it. Consequently, this book could not have been written before Jerusalem had been taken. The reader will recollect the quotation I have just before made from the 15th chapter of Joshua, verse 63, where it is said that the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day, meaning the time when the book of Joshua was written. The evidence I have already produced to prove that the books I have hitherto treated of were not written by the persons to whom they are ascribed, nor till many years after their death, if such persons ever live, is already so abundant that I can afford to admit this passage with less weight than I am entitled to draw from it. For the case is that so far as the Bible can be credited as a history the city of Jerusalem was not taken till the time of David, and consequently that the books of Joshua and of Judges were not written till after the commencement of the reign of David, which was 370 years after the death of Joshua. The name of the city that was afterward called Jerusalem was originally Jebus, or Jebusai and was the capital of the Jebusites. The account of David's taking this city is given in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, etc. Also in 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 4, etc. There is no mention in any part of the Bible that it was ever taken before, nor any account that favors such an opinion. It is not said either in Samuel or in Chronicles, that they utterly destroyed men, women, and children, that they left not a soul to breathe, 
as is said of their other conquests, and the silence here observed implies that it was taken by capitulation, and that the Jebusites, the native inhabitants, continued to live in the place after it was taken. The account, therefore, given in Joshua, that the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day, corresponds to no other time than after the taking of the city by David. Having now shown that every book in the Bible, from Genesis to Judges, is without authenticity, I come to the book of Ruth, an idle, bungling story foolishly told, nobody knows by whom, about a strolling country girl creeping slyly to bed with her cousin Boaz. Pretty stuff, indeed, to be called the Word of God. It is, however, one of the best books in the Bible, for it is free from murder and rapine. I come next to the two books of Samuel, and to show that those books were not written by Samuel, nor till a great length of time after the death of Samuel, and that they are, like all the former books, anonymous and without authority. To be convinced that these books have been written much later than the time of Samuel, and consequently not by him, it is only necessary to read the account which the writer gives of Saul going to seek his father's asses, and of his interview with Samuel, of whom Saul went to inquire about those lost asses, as foolish people nowadays go to a conjurer to inquire after lost things. The writer, in relating this story of Saul, Samuel, and the asses, does not tell it as a thing that has just then happened, but as an ancient story in the time this writer lived, for he tells it in the language or terms used at the time that Samuel lived, which obliges the writer to explain the story in the terms or language used in the time the writer lived. Samuel, in the account given of him, in the first of those books, chapter 9, is called the seer, and it is by this term that Saul inquires after him. Verse 2. And as they, Saul and his servant, went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water, and they said unto them, Is the seer here? Saul then went according to the direction of these maidens, and met Samuel without knowing him, and said unto him, verse 18, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. As the writer of the book of Samuel relates these questions and answers in the language or manner of speaking used in the time they are said to have been spoken, and as that manner of speaking was out of use when this author wrote, he found it necessary, in order to make the story understood, to explain the terms in which these questions and answers are spoken. And he does this in the ninth verse, when he says, Before time, in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come, and let us go to the seer for he that is now called a prophet 
was before time called a seer. This proves, as I have before said, that this story of Saul, Samuel, and the asses was an ancient story at the time of the book of Samuel was written, and consequently that Samuel did not write it, and that that book is without authenticity. But if we go further into those books, the evidence is still more positive that Samuel is not the writer of them, for they relate things that did not happen till several years after the death of Samuel. Samuel died before Saul, for the first Samuel, chapter 28, tells that Saul and the witch of Endor conjured Samuel up after he was dead. Yet the history of the matters contained in those books is extended through the remaining part of Saul's life and to the latter end of the life of David, who succeeded Saul. The account of the death and burial of Samuel, a thing which he could not write himself, is related in chapter 25 of the first book of Samuel, and the chronology affixed to this chapter makes this to be 1,060 years before Christ, yet the history of this first book is brought down to 1,056 years before Christ, that is, to the death of Saul, which is not till four years after the death of Samuel. The second book of Samuel begins with an account of things that did not happen until four years after Samuel was dead, for it begins with the reign of David, who succeeded Saul, and it goes on to the end of David's reign, which was 43 years after the death of Samuel, and therefore the books are in themselves positive evidence that they were not written by Samuel. I have now gone through all the books in the first part of the Bible, to which the names of persons are affixed as being the authors of those books, and which the church styling itself the Christian church has imposed upon the world as the writings of Moses, Joshua, and Samuel, and I have detected and proved the falsehood of this imposition. And now, ye priests of every description, who have preached and written against the former part of the age of reason, what have ye to say? Will ye, with all this mass of evidence against you and staring you in the face, still have the assurance to march into your pulpits and continue to impose these books on your congregations as the works of inspired penmen and the word of God, when it is as evident as demonstration can make truth appear that the persons who, ye say, are the authors, are not the authors, and that ye know not who the authors are. What shadow of pretense have ye now to produce for continuing the blasphemous fraud? What have ye still to offer against the pure and moral religion of deism in support of your system of falsehood, idolatry, and pretended revelation? Had the cruel and murdering orders with which the Bible is filled and the numberless torturing executions of men, women, and children, in consequence of those orders, been ascribed to some friend whose memory you revered, you would have glowed with satisfaction at detecting the falsehood of the charge, 
and gloried in defending his injured fame. It is because ye are sunk in the cruelty of superstition or feel no interest in the honor of your Creator that ye listen to the horrid tales of the Bible or hear them with callous indifference. The evidence I have produced and shall still produce in the course of this work to prove that the Bible is without authority will, whilst it wounds the stubbornness of a priest, relieve and tranquilize the minds of millions. It will free them from all those hard thoughts of the Almighty which priestcraft and the Bible had infused into their minds, and which stood in everlasting opposition to all their ideas of his moral justice and benevolence. I come now to the two books of Kings and the two books of Chronicles. Those books are altogether historical and are chiefly confined to the lives and actions of the Jewish kings, who in general were a parcel of rascals. But these are matters with which we have no more concern than we have with the Roman emperors or Homer's account of the Trojan War. Besides which, as those books are anonymous, and as we know nothing of the writer or of his character, it is impossible for us to know what degree of credit to give to the matters related therein. Like all other ancient histories, they appear to be a jumble of fable and of fact and of probable and of improbable things, but which distance of time and place and change of circumstances in the world have rendered obsolete and uninteresting. The chief use I shall make of those books will be that of comparing them with each other and with other parts of the Bible to show the confusion, contradiction, and cruelty in this pretended word of God. The first book of Kings begins with the reign of Solomon, which according to the Bible chronology was 1,015 years before Christ and the second book ends 588 years before Christ, being a little after the reign of Zedekiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, after taking Jerusalem and conquering the Jews, carried captive to Babylon. The two books include a space of 427 years. The two books of Chronicles are a history of the same times and in general of the same persons, by another author, for it would be absurd to suppose that the same author wrote the history twice over. The first book of Chronicles, after giving the genealogy from Adam to Saul, which takes up the first nine chapters, begins with the reign of David, and the last book ends, as in the last book of Kings, soon after the reign of Zedekiah, about 588 years before Christ. The last two verses of the last chapter bring the history 52 years more forward, that is, to 536. But these verses do not belong to the book, as I shall show when I come to speak of the book of Ezra. The two books of Kings, besides the history of Saul, David, and Solomon, who reigned over all Israel, contain an abstract of the lives of seventeen kings and one queen 
who are styled kings of Judah, and of nineteen who are styled kings of Israel. For the Jewish nation, immediately on the death of Solomon, split into two parties who chose separate kings and who carried on the most rancorous wars against each other. Those two books are little more than a history of assassinations, treachery, and wars. The cruelties that the Jews had accustomed themselves to practice on the Canaanites, whose country they had savagely invaded under a pretended gift from God, they afterwards practiced as furiously on each other. Scarcely half their kings died a natural death, and in some instances, whole families were destroyed to secure possession to the successor, who, after a few years, and sometimes only a few months, or less, shared the same fate. In the tenth chapter of the second book of Kings, an account is given of two baskets full of children's heads, seventy in number, being exposed at the entrance of the city. They were the children of Ahab, and were murdered by the order of Jehu, whom Elisha, the pretended man of God, had anointed to be king over Israel on purpose to commit this bloody deed and assassinate his predecessor. And in the account of the reign of Menahem, one of the kings of Israel, who had murdered Shalom, who had reigned but one month, it is said, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 16, that Menahem smote the city of Tipshah, because they opened not the city to him, and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. End of section 6